If you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14, we'll begin reading in verse 21, a little review, and then getting into a portion of Scripture that we didn't quite cover last week, but certainly needs our attention. I better turn this up. Acts chapter 14, beginning verse 21, through the end of the chapter. I'm sorry, we're going to read through chapter 5, verse 5 as well. God's word declares, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Keep your hymn books handy. We're going to need one of the hymns we sung for a little bit part of the service this morning. So keep your hymn book handy. That hymn number 100 we're going to come back to. But do turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Last week's message was one of those that um, probably needs to be preached again. Uh, this is a typical thing done during the time of the Great Enlightenment. Um, the great revivals that happened, uh, we often think of them being filled with uh, abundant and very good sermonizing. And uh, that is true. What we don't always realize historically is how many of those sermons were re-preached uh, sometimes over 50 times, uh, same message. They would often uh, do it in circuits from church to church. Remember, most of those pastors had more than one church. And so uh, they would do it in a circuit. And you might only hear one message a month um, because your pastor is preaching to three other churches. And uh, that was not uncommon during that time. Uh, but in the course of that, these men were able to develop very strong sermons that they would preach multiple occasions. And I'm certainly not going to do that, um, although you're almost a new congregation from last week, I have to tell you that. So uh, a few of you weren't here last week, and uh, because of our technological advances, you can get on podcasts and listen to that 50 times if you want. Um, I think we're up to date. Are we up to date? Do we know if we got last week's? I don't know. We got a few sermons on there. I don't know if we got last week's yet. But uh, we'll get on these guys and get it going. Um, when uh, the Silcots were here two weeks ago, 
Um, Caleb came up and was chastising us for not keeping our podcast current. Um, he says, well, I listen to every sermon, and sometimes two a day. And I was like, wait a minute, you listen to a sermon a day? And I was like, mine? And <laughs> I was like, that's like 45 minutes, hour. And uh, he said, yeah. He says, I'm trying to make up all your past ones. So um, somebody's listening to him. So keep up the work, guys. Uh, Jer- David must be, there he is, he's wandering around. So David, keep the work. You don't know what work now, but get on you. So I'm going to be preaching a little bit of last week's sermon. Um, you might call it review, uh, but it's substantial enough that it needs to be readdressed before we get into really what I want to talk. And, it, and it's fundamental, it's foundational to our discussion this morning on the church. And before we get into that, though, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us. And we pray that as we look into it, your spirit might direct what is said, what is heard, that we might be responsive to it, that uh, if there is uh, stubbornness, if there is bitterness, if there is sin in our life that would keep us from hearing your truth today, uh, Lord, we pray that you might uh, just tear it out of our hearts, that it might be gone, that we might surrender it uh, and truly desire your will in our life and not our own. And Lord, we know that that really is the essence of the Christian life. And, and uh, so Lord, we pray for your help and we know that it requires something of us to willingly surrender it. And, and uh, I can't do that on behalf of this congregation, but Lord, for my own part, pray that we might have hearts sensitive and tender to your uh, leading, to your direction, to your correction, and, uh, and to your challenge. And again, we pray that you might guard this time, that we might not be led into error, uh, that we might not be captivated by the philosophies of this world, but that we might be enthralled by your truth and by your work and your desires. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we saw last week uh, Paul's back trip, Paul and Barnabas' back trip as they Uh, return and revisit the places that they had already gone to uh, on the front half of the missionary journey. We're not really, even though uh, we have uh, it encapsulated just a few verses, we really don't know how long it took them to get back. It may have taken them just as long to get back as it took to get there. So they've been moving through Asia Minor, and uh, now they have come to Derby. Derby is the turnaround point where they're going to go back into Lystra, Iconium, and uh, work their way back around uh, to the Mediterranean and then take uh, a sea voyage, a Mediterranean voyage uh, back over and head to Tarsus. Uh, not to Tarsus, I'm sorry, Antioch. And so they stopped right before Tarsus. Before they got into Paul's hometown, um, they stopped and turned around. And we have this record of what they did on their way back as they visited uh, with one exception. The exception, again, was in Perga, and that's where we ended last week, was the exception to the rule that uh, what, this is the one place on our journey forward that we never saw Paul and Barnabas sharing the gospel. This was the place of dissension. This is the place of, of conflict, really, for this missionary team. Because John Mark was with them, and it was in Perga that something happened, and John Mark turned around and ran home. It was so disruptive and so um, 
impacting upon this group that for Paul, he could not, by the next missionary journey, even conceive of taking John Mark with them. He was so adamant about it that that he uh, was willing to part ways with Barnabas and go separate missionary journeys over whether or not John Mark was worth taking for ministry again. So whatever happened in Perga, we're not really told fully what occurred, but that disruption of either him having complaint against what was being taught, um, whether he had a complaint that his, that his Uncle Barnabas wasn't uh, in charge and Paul was... We, we don't know. We can imagine and speculate, but we don't know. Whatever happened there, it not only caused disruption of this little missionary team, but it also disrupted the ministry. So that when... We leave Perga. We have no evidence that the gospel is ever really preached there. And so on the trip back, Paul, when he goes city after city, who is establishing these things that we're going to review really quickly, um, gets to Perga and he doesn't do those things. Rather, he has to preach the word. So Paul and Barnabas are preaching in Perga rather than establishing churches, strengthening the saints, encouraging them, uh, selecting leadership for the church, Instead of commanding the Lord, instead of doing all of those things, we find them having to preach the word in Perga. And so, when we talk about the ministry of the church, which we're going to really focus in on today, I want you to understand that the ministry of the church, in order to be effective, demands that we have a unity. And uh, we've sung about it this morning. We've declared it in song. And uh, some of you don't declare anything in song because you just don't move your lips or else you're able to sing without moving your lips, which is incredible. Um, you should hook up with Timothy Silcott and be a ventriloquist. Um, we sing about it, about uh, keeping us out of sin and of, and of uniting with the brethren. And, and we, we declare that. And I don't think we always recognize just how vital it is that we... Uh, have this unity. And this morning we are celebrating that. And into this afternoon, we are having communion today. We are going to participate in a love feast after that, uh, after the service today. And the whole purpose, the whole idea behind these biblical elements is to uh, give us an understanding of our oneness in Christ. And it is critical to the ministry. That when our ministry is divisive and when there is a dissent and when there is a, a conflict, it, it decimates the work that we're supposed to be doing. Not just in the discouragement or the anger or the frustration that might come upon leadership. I mean, we see it in Paul. I mean, it's going to be borne out in a few chapters when we, when we uh, find them discussing a second journey. We're going to see its lingering impact on leadership. But its immediate impact on ministry uh, was evident there in Perga. And so on the way back, they're not strengthening the saints because there weren't any. They weren't encouraging them because they didn't exist. They could not establish leadership because they hadn't established a, a body of saints yet. All because of whatever issue, and I love that it, we don't know, because then we can insert any issue you have, uh, whatever issue John Mark brought up 
that made him turn tail and run. Say, forget this, I'm going home. I'm going to take my marbles and leave. You guys don't, how many of you have no idea what I'm just referring to? Take my marbles and leave. Come on, be honest. A lot of you have never played marbles, have you? Oh. By the way, it was one of the things that I was preached against back in the day. It was because we weren't allowed to play marbles. Figure that one out because it was considered a form of gambling. But uh, we have that attitude. I'm just going to take my marbles and leave because I don't like something that's going on. And what we don't grasp is that that attitude, that spirit, is sin. It really is. Um, God doesn't ever call us to do that once you're in a body. Can you imagine your hands saying, yeah, I'm tired of this, I'm leaving. A knee saying, I'm not appreciated here, I'm out of here. Maybe that's what happened to my knees, why they hurt so much. Um, no. And we recognize that when one body is hurting, when it's got issues, the body addresses it, and, and this body maybe has to sustain those issues, and we keep it. It's a pretty radical thing to have to uh, remove a body part. And yet we have taken the concept of church and we made it so unimportant in our lives that we are willing to extract ourselves from it at a whim. And this is what John Mark did. And what it does is it destroys ministry, destroys the testimony. And there in Perga, for whatever reasons, whether because of Barnabas and Paul, because their reaction to that, their discouragement, their disappointment, um, maybe their contentions, um, or maybe just because of the testimony, uh, they were not able to minister in Perga the way they had desired to. And so now we, we back up and we... Uh, want to see, well, what does God want to have us do? And what is my part in that? And do I have a vital role? Now, we can look at John Mark and we say, well, was his role vital? No. His role wasn't vital. That is, ministry didn't stop because John Mark left. Ministry stopped because John Mark made a scene. There's a difference. Did they establish the gospel and churches in Iconium? Yes. In Lystra? Yes. In Derby? Yes. All these places listed, they were successful. They got beaten up and they had opposition. There's no doubt about that. John Mark wouldn't have influenced that one way or the other. But they were successful in their, in their ministry. And in fact, when they arrive at Antioch, the thing they say is that, uh, in verse 26, it says... Um, they, they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. They completed the work. They didn't need John Mark. And technically, many people say, well, John Mark really wasn't selected by God because John Mark wasn't at the prayer meeting and he wasn't one of the two that God set aside for the work. And we can impose a lot of those ideas and make excuses for his failure. But uh, I, I would agree. John Mark uh, isn't a vital part of ministry. And once that was resolved, ministry picked right back up. And so, uh, for many within the church, yes, um, maybe you don't feel like your role is vital in terms of, will ministry keep going without me? Well, yes. And I'll tell you why. Because God is faithful when you aren't. The ministry of the church will not cease simply because people within the church are not faithful. 
God is faithful and it will move on. And uh, we, we can make it happen. But in the, in the environment that is created by contention and sin and, and rebellion and all that, that is entailed there, in the, in the mess, in the muck of that, uh, for a season, ministry is going to be interrupted. And while we can say, well, I'm not vital to the ministry, which, by the way, none of you are. None of us are. We're all replaceable. Because God is faithful when we are faithless. What we are are critical to maintaining ministry day to day to day to day. That is day after day. To keep ministry from being disrupted is critical. Your part. Because the fact is, if I choose to participate in this sin, I know that it is going to, once it comes out, disrupt the church, and I persist in that, then at some point I am going to affect the ministry. On the long term, yes, ministry will be reinstated. It will Continue, but you're going to bring this disruption, and we don't know who is going to be offended, taken aback, uh, discouraged in ministry, or even in their own salvation. And that's a horrible thing to put on your conscience, isn't it? It should be. I believe Christ said it's better for a millstone to be tied around your neck than to keep a little one from Christ. When our decisions are recognized as something that impact a community of saints and their ministry, uh, we begin to realize that ministry involves children as well as adults. And the Bible says it's better for you to be dead than do that. Now, John Mark is going to fix whatever was wrong. He's going to correct. It's going to be corrected in his life. Whatever it was. It's going to be corrected to such a point that Paul's going to say, I need him for the ministry. He's profitable. He's useful. He's valuable again. Uh, and Paul's going to come turn around on this, but it, it's really based upon John Mark's turning around uh, as, and, and correcting himself, making himself useful again. And this is so important in the church. Well, what do we need to be useful for? And again, we have to go back into this list. And remember, we're going to see it played out in another church. Uh, the list of what they did, remember from last week, um, not difficult, but very important. Uh, the first thing we find is they strengthened the souls of the disciples. Uh, that is, they, they trained them. They, they taught them. They edified them. They built them up. This is through the teaching ministry of the church that if we are disrupting the teaching ministry, we are disrupting the church. If we are devaluing the teaching ministry, you are devaluing the work of God in the church. And we have a role to play. Among those roles is to be able to take our Bibles, listen to what we are taught, look into the Bible, and discern um, if that is in accordance with God's Word. Once it is discerned to be in accordance with God's Word, then it is incumbent upon me to submit myself to that truth and surrender. If I choose not to do that, then I'm going to bring a disruption into the church. 
if I choose not to know my Bible enough to be able to discern truth, then I'm going to be able to be pulled away by any teacher that comes along and is fanciful and, and makes me smile or I like their charisma. Uh, we're going to be drawn into every wind of doctrine. Uh, and so we need to be strengthened. We need to have this, this building, this firmness. And firmness is built into our teaching and, and studying of God's Word. And then we also have exhortation that we as a church are encouraging one another and challenging one another. This exhortation involves not just come along, buddy, keep it up, but it's also with a warning. Do not fall away. And we looked, remember, at Hebrews and other passages how in Galatians, how can you go back to that stuff when you have this that's so much better? How could you ever think to go to that? Why are you like the dog going back and eating its own vomit? Is the imagery the Bible paints. How could you go back to that? And so stay faithful. And there's, a, there's, a, there's an encouragement, an exhortation here. Uh, and among that faithfulness is the recognition that we're going to have opposition. And we must, through many tribulations, enter into the kingdom of God. Um, faithfulness is not uh, really measured when you just have comfort and everything going your way. And that's, a, that's an error to teach that. The fact is that we are seeking to live righteously in an ungodly world. You don't think that's going to bring conflict in your life? You don't think that's going to bring conflict within your family? Then you don't understand. I think Christ said something about brother hating brother and children against their parents. And Did you study that in Sunday school this morning? I was in your text this morning when I taught Sunday school. I was listening for a while until it was our story time. Then I didn't listen anymore. Conflict. Why? Because we have created a distinction between men where there was no distinction. All men were sinners. Now we have a distinction. There are some that are made righteous by the blood of Christ and the rest are in sin. And these are the two classes of humans that are walking on the planet today. All the other classifications that we introduce are ridiculous and superficial. They're shallow. Economic, color of your skin, the language you speak. That stuff is just superficial and... and Stupid. This distinction is critical. It's the only one that matters. Those who are in righteousness and those who are in darkness. You can't walk the gray line because there isn't one. So God calls us to this. And so we're going to have opposition. And if we're truly walking in light, that darkness will hate us. Uh, that even though they're attracted to us like bugs to a light, and I talked to teens about this, um, we have this expectation of tribulation. And uh, we need to be encouraged and to be faithful, to stand fast, but to do so in righteousness. Not by our emotions being propped up, your feelings being kept preserved, um, but by the strength of exhortation. Be righteous. Isn't this what Titus is told? We are looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What does that tell us to do? That we live righteously and godly in this present world. That's going to bring conflict. And so we need to challenge and encourage one another to righteous living. 
and to be braced and ready when our friends, our family, our co-workers hate us for it. And we'll stay the course nonetheless. Why? Because I have a church of people around me, a spirit of God within me, the word of God before me that will strengthen me, that will encourage and exhort me to continue in the faith. And then we talked about the necessity of leadership and that when we find good leadership in Thursday night, our men's study, we were talking about uh, who you're getting your information from. <laughs> it matters. It matters who you're getting your advice from. And uh, the necessity of when we find the wise, when we find the godly, that, that we uh, invest ourselves in hearing that and hear Solomon speaking to his sons. My son, listen. Listen carefully. Apply yourself. Um, let me tell you what I heard from my dad. My dad told me that before you get anything else, before you worry about any pursuing anything else, this one pursuit must captivate your life, and it is wisdom above everything. Give it all up if you can pursue this. So we need to have leadership that directs us that way in our homes, in our church, in, our, in all of our lives. We need that kind of leadership. Once we identify it, that we surrender to it and follow it. And then, of course, we saw the necessity of prayer. Fasting. That we might be commended to the Lord. That ultimately our trust is not in leadership but leadership as they follow the Lord. Our trust is in the Lord to finish that which He had begun in us. But let us make sure that we are cooperating with Him as He seeks to finish what He began in us. And let us also be sure that He actually began something in us. Well, that brings us down to Antioch. So all these churches are being established in all these communities and we come back to Antioch, and it's almost like you take a deep breath and exhale and just relax, right? You're home. Paul and Barnabas have gotten home. And uh, what a great picture of their recognition of the place of the church in their lives. That these guys that we describe as apostles, or at least Paul, most will recognize him as an apostle, but both of them, as apostolic men... They're out there proclaiming, they're healing, they're, they're preaching the gospel. They're coming back, they're establishing churches with leadership and, and all the necessary elements are there to have great, good churches. And they come home and you find them arriving and they recognize that we have a, even though we're the, part of the leadership of the church and while we have been ministering for years out there, really without a lot of accountability, we really do have accountability. We certainly have accountability to God, first of all, but we also have accountability to our church. And they head back to Antioch, and they are going to not just visit for one Sunday and show slides of, you know, here's what happened in Lystra. Um, no, they're not gonna, it's much more substantial than that. It says they're going to get there, they're going to spend a long time there, it says in verse 28, with the disciples, but to look at what, what happened. It says they had gathered, uh, the church had gathered together, verse 27. Uh, they reported all that God had done with them. They saw the necessity of communicating with God's people. Um, we are your agents. We are responsibility and accountability to you. And we want to share with you 
for both reasons of our ministry, but also for the benefit of you and your ministry, that God is at work. Whatever he has or hasn't been doing here in Antioch, we want you to know that he is certainly doing something over there in Iconium, Lystra, and in those parts, Perga, Cyprus, all those places that they have visited. And they report all that God done through them. And in the midst of all this is something really radical. Can you imagine this? Something radical coming from the mission field? <laughs> yeah, never mind. It's an inside joke. Um, a radical principle coming from the mission field. Here it is. Gentiles are getting saved all over the place. Is that possible? Can we really do that? You mean they're coming to Judaism then getting... No. Gentiles are getting saved. And so here's all that God's done with us. Um, and God has not just cracked the door for, of faith to the Gentiles that if they come through the synagogue, they can get saved. Remember, we always started the synagogue, but it was really about a week later that now we're outside the synagogue and we're just preaching to everybody. Remember that pattern that we saw? And so he's saying the door of faith has been burst open for the Gentiles. And we've got better reception among the Gentiles than we did among the, our Jewish brethren. And remember, you're talking about a priest and a Pharisee out there ministering in synagogues with all the authority and, and, the, and, and credibility that that carried. And we come in and he says, listen, the Gentiles are listening. They're receptive. They're hearing it. And... They're getting saved. They're trusting in Christ. They're becoming followers of Jesus Christ. They're coming out of their paganism. They're coming out of all of their uh, false gods that they worship and all the practices that were there. And, and they're abandoning them. We're going to see later on when, it, when we get into, wow, um, some of those places where they, they, they have uh, a huge pile of books on witchcraft that they're, and magic that they're burning. And the whole town... Big old bonfire. We're going to get rid of this junk because it doesn't agree with Christ. We've been raised with it, but that doesn't make it right. And in fact, it led us into error and into uh, misery and, and destruction. And not life and certainly not the peace of God and the forgiveness of sin and the love of God. So the Gentiles were turning from their Gods that weren't gods to the one true and living God. And Paul shares this with the church. And the church is excited to hear it. Do you see that? It brought joy, it says. Um, not just in Antioch, if you go down to chapter 15, verse 3. It says, So being set on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And so people are saying, that's exciting. That's, that is excellent. And so now God has provided a means not just for one nation to come to him, but for all the nations. And Paul becomes the spokesman for this entire powerful opening of the gospel to this group of people that have been largely disdained by the people of Israel. And now there's great joy when here come these two missionaries back from their journey, and these two apostles 
to declare God's working. And we find that the church is invigorated by it. Rejuvenated if they needed it. They weren't rejuvenated, they were at least more juvenated. Extra juvenated? Here comes these in, and the period of time they spend together in ministry and reflecting on the work of God and the expansiveness of God's plan and the power of his hand among all peoples uh, brought joy. And we think, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy this, right? But in comes that conflict of error. And this is going to stretch into the next chapter or two and of how they're going to address this and then the results of it. But we find that some Pharisees who had come to know Christ were not of the same ilk as Paul. Paul himself was a Pharisee. Um, but other Pharisees were still very, very much committed to the law. And so some came down and from Judea taught the brethren that you have to be circumcised or you're not saved. They want to add to the work of Christ. There's a dispute. Paul and Barnabas are not going to let that stand, not by a long shot. They're not going to let that kind of statement stand in the church. And the church is now confronted with these two faithful servants of God and these who claim some measure of authority, and we have now uh, another conflict within the church. And it needs to be resolved. And we find that this was no small conflict. uh, The church saw the dissension, saw the dispute, um, and recognized that this has to be resolved. We can't just uh, put our heads in the ground and do the ostrich thing. Uh, We've got to address this. This has to be Uh, taken care of. It has to be one way or the other. There's no compromising place um, between these two positions. Either you have to keep some of the law uh, to get saved, or Christ is sufficient. So the church says, we're going to send some of our people, including Paul and Barnabas, we're going to send you down, and we're going to hold a uh, multi-church conference to work out this issue right now. And we're going to address this. Now, we greatly appreciate the conference. We really do. It is a great benefit to us. Um, But what I want to share with you is the focus of what happened at the Church of Antioch. What's its focus on? Is it on reaching the lost, reaching the Gentiles in their community? No, it focuses on this conflict. And again, we have, because of some that have come in and stirred up strife and brought in principles that were not of God, but of their old beliefs, we have a suspension of real ministry. And now the center focus for the church isn't joy, it's conflict. Not conflict with the world. I expect that. Paul expected tribulation with the world. But in the church, this should not be. But they're not going to let this error stand. It must be addressed. It must be uh, destroyed. It must be 
weeded out. And so now they're on their trip south. And they come to Jerusalem. They find the exact same problem. In verse 5, a sect of Pharisees who were believers uh, rose up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. See, it wasn't just, just the act of circumcision. Circumcision was simply a single act that represented a position that you had to keep the whole law. Everything in the law of Moses must be kept in order to be a, a vital Christian. You must keep all the food laws, all the Sabbath laws, all the Levitical laws. I mean, where does it all end? All the, all the cleansing laws, everything. And the question is, where does that end? And they saw the great error that is there. And so it has to be addressed. It's going to be addressed by the church in Jerusalem. But we find, again, that Paul and Barnabas uh, don't just say, you do what you want, we're going to start our own church. No, it has to be resolved because our church is our body. And as if any pathogen comes into our body... What do we have? We attack it and we create this fever and we, and we want to assault this stuff and get it out and purge it from us. And, and, and that's what our body does. When we have that kind of infection come into the church, we don't just walk away from it and just say, well, that one's dead. I'm out of here. No. By the way, that is the typical way in America to do it. Because of all the things that's politically correct, one thing that's definitely not politically correct is confrontation in our society today. Um, I asked my daughter, we were waiting in line to get into the Lady Lobos game, and I asked my daughter, if I walked up to the very, there's like 300 of us out there, and they had two ticket windows open. Um, so a long line, all the way out from the building, all the way out to university. Big crowd of people trying to get in. We got in it just at half. We missed the first half of the game waiting in line. So I'm sitting there, I say, what do you think people would do if I just walked up to the front and pushed my way in as the next person in line? Do you think anyone would stop me? She said, they give you dirty looks. Is that what she said? They just give you dirty looks. I said, do you think anyone would try to stop me? Oh, no, because that's not acceptable anymore. You're not allowed to confront people. You just give them dirty looks. You say nasty things behind their back. You know, you say that's not... But you let them do that. That's not the way it is in the church. At least it's not the way it should be. When something comes into the church that doesn't belong in the church, that infection needs to be addressed by the church. And Paul and Barnabas don't take it upon themselves. They, they identify the infection. They identify the evil that has been being that's being brought in and promoted and, and introduced. Uh, they're identifying it, but they are willing to subject themselves to the church. The church says, send us down to the Jerusalem body where all the apostles are, and let's just resolve this not just for our church, but regionally for the church. And we see again and again this wholesale commitment to the local church and to the universal or Catholic church. That's all the word Catholic means, universal. To all the body of believers. We have a commitment not only to set this right and get rid of this infection in this group of believers, but in the larger church, capital C, 
we have this commitment, and we actually sing about it. Um, we sang about this morning, and I invite you to take your hymn books again to number 100, and I want you to see what you sang about. Let's see if you are prepared to sing about this stuff, what you are singing about. Let's see if you are paying attention at all to see what you are singing about. We talk about the love. That's great in verse 1. Joy, that's great in verse 1. Um, and that God's going to dwell in us and his faithful mercies. And, and we read, we go through verse 1 and we're really excited. We're going to have all the stuff about God. By the way, notice that the whole song is in the first person plural. Not me, 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 I, 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 but we, 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 us, us, us. There's a song about the church in us. Now we find out what the ministry is all about. Verse 2. Breathe thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. There's troubled hearts here. Yep. Churches are full of them. It's okay. fact is, all of us come with a troubling heart. There are things that trouble my heart. The Spirit has to minister to us. He ministers to us through His Word, through His Spirit, through His people. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find that promised rest. We have an inheritance. We have heaven. But the fact is, on our own, most of the time we get confused or distracted by the things of this world. We forgot about our inheritance. We just think about today. Priest presses on. Look at verse 2. Here we go. You're not going to like this one. Take away our bent to sinning. Yeah, you sang that earlier today. God's love divine, love excelling. Take away our bent to sinning. By the way, that is what God does in salvation. He takes that away. Now the power of sin is gone. Its presence is there, but it doesn't have the power. You have a choice now. You don't have to choose that sin. You now have a new person in you. The old has passed away. All things have become new. You have put to death that sin nature, and now you have this new nature, and we are still living with that dead thing in the closet. Sometimes, some of you put it in the middle of the living room for some reason. You like your corpse, your sin nature out there in the open. Um, most of us keep, try to keep it in the closet, but it's still hanging around. Why we keep it so close to our hearts, I don't know. Take away our bent for seeing, oh, that we would have that interest that we sang about. And it ends verse 2, set our hearts at liberty. The heart that is once troubled is now free. In what context does this happen? It happens within the context of the local church. All of these things, all these troubles that we have been studying in the book of Acts, going all the way back to the care of the widows and, and the distribution of funds and materials, um, were all resolved within the church. They didn't destroy the church. The church was strengthened. And when someone comes in and they want to lie in church, well... They drop dead. 
The church was strengthened. Someone comes in and wants to say, oh, what you've been hearing for all these years from these men of God who have faithfully served God for you for years is all bogus. You've got to be circumcised and keep the law. The church is going to deal with that because they're strong. They recognize the necessity. And when all these troubles come into, we get them resolved through the liberty of Christ, our Alpha and Omega. The song goes on. We could spend the rest of the time in this, really, but I don't want to. Um, I just want to challenge you that when we're singing, there's a reason. And we can think about what we're singing, that it talks about our goals, our aspirations as a church. And here John, I'm sorry, John, Paul and Barnabas are demonstrating their great commitment to the local church. To do its work, but also to work through it. To purge out the infections that come, the errors that show up. They're committed to it. They're not going to run away nor do they want to be the source of error coming in. And I pray that that is our heart, that we as individuals, whether we consider our role vital to the church or not, uh, and I've already said none of you have a vital role because we're all replaceable, um, but we recognize that while I might not have a vital role to its survival, I certainly have a necessary role in terms of the effectiveness of its ministry. That I do my part in this strategy of how a church is strengthened and, and how a church is uh, exhorted and, and led and, and commended by God, invested in prayer and ready to take on the opposition that is out there in the world uh, that re- demands of us a commitment to the body of Christ. And there's been so much movement in our day. And really, I've seen really about the last 20 years of just uh, attacking the church. And we're not talking about the world attacking the church. We're talking about, quote-unquote, Christian and even Christian leaders attacking the very necessity of the church, challenging it. Do we even need them anymore? I can do all this at home. Come on, all of you have heard that, right? Have you heard those guys? They're out there. There's plenty of them. I can do all this at home. No, you can't. The church is still the instrument of God, a body of saints called out from among the world to represent Christ to its community in a visible and demonstrable way. Not there simply to serve my own interests, but I'm here to serve the interests of my family, of my children, of my brethren, of my sisters, secret or not. (laughs) I am here to serve. And those that sit at home are serving themselves. And that means that they are not doing church. Because church is about serving others. 
And yes, that means sometimes we have to deal with ugly little things like infections and error that come in and sin that needs to be rooted out and, and, and attacked and destroyed. Yes, that's true. All that is true. But how dare we walk away and decry the church age is over because I don't like doing the hard work of establishing good churches. Because it's not popular anymore. Because obeying the commands of God are not consistent with our cultural norms. That's really what it's all about. And so we're going to throw it all out. We don't need the church. I can get at home. I can get online, get whatever preacher I want to hear. They could be of national renown and have great flowing words and and, uh, they don't stammer like you. And they'll tell me what I want to hear and I can sit there in my jammies and I can have a snack while I listen and I can choose whether I sing or not and I can pick the songs and I can be comfortable. And you're in sin. The sin of rebelling against God's bride. And it's far beyond time for us to start conceiving of the church and of my Christian walk in first-person plural terms. That it's us and we and not me. That this endeavor God has called us to involves a body of saints. And are we going to have problems that are going to have to be addressed? Yes, they are. Some of them are very practical. This person's not getting food. It needs to be addressed. Uh, getting what they need. Um, are they theological? Yes, there are theological issues. Um, do we just ignore them and say, oh, I wish we didn't have to deal with that. I wish we didn't have to deal with that at all. If you would all agree with me all the time, we would never have to deal with that ever again. I hope you don't ever do that. <laughs> and I hope I don't ever have that spirit. We have to address these. That when we're, we are struggling, where we are not lined up with Scripture, that we need to be ready to adjust ourselves. And we need to be invested in that process, even when sometimes it gets a little heated. I think there's a little heat here when it talks about uh, no small dissension and dispute. Remember, all these people are believers. Now, those that persist in it after what's coming in chapter 15, Paul doesn't have any time for them. Because the wisdom of these men of God has been flatly rejected, and these people want to persist in saying, you have to keep the law. And these Judaizers, uh, Paul has some pretty strong words to say about them in Galatians. Do you agree? You know, he wants them to go mutilate themselves. But overall, we don't throw the church out in that midst. And we don't walk away from the church and we don't start our own church. We resolve ourselves to be part of this body. And that on my part, I'm not going to be the one to be, bring the infection. I am not the one that's going to introduce the disease. I am not going to be the one that's going to bring the injury into this body. And that 
is vital. This is your vital, that is your vital role. Is that you will not inhibit the ministry by bringing in this kind of garbage. Self-interest, is the James tells us, is the origin of all kinds of misery. Following yourself. And we have made church a, a thing like a store, and like we're customers and consumers, and, and if they don't give me what I want, I'm gone. Um, and it's, it's so very different than that. That it, it's horrific to even think in those terms, and yet that's the way most of our churches are designed today. To market a product to a customer. I am not here to market a product to you. I'm here to tell you the truth from God's Word and to minister it to you and to demonstrate it to you. And if you don't like that truth, then I'm not going to change the message because the message is true. The issue is yours. To acknowledge it and to follow it or to reject it and have the misery that follows that. I have on occasions said, there's the door. Because these are uncompromisable. We dare not move away from God's word to serve anybody. For we are doing a disservice to them in the process of claiming to serve them. To bring them in. We bring them in from sin. Into the light of truth. Of righteousness. And this demands something of me. So Paul and Barnabas here have given us this wonderful imagery by example of their great commitment to the church. And we are challenged, I hope today, to do our part in that. To be invested in this wondrous institution called the Bride of Christ, the Body of Christ. And as we consider ourselves in that role, the question that maybe we need to ask today, am I disrupting the ministry by my interests being first in my life instead of others? Or am I enhancing the ministry of the church by investing myself in caring for my brethren? Is church about us and ours, or is it about me and mine? That's what it boils down to. Our time in communion this morning is going to be reflected that this is an us thing around the person Jesus Christ. Our love feast is about an us. Not me and mine. To serve one another in the love of Christ. Love excelling. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us that took us out of this wicked world and made us righteous agents within it and we marvel at that and frankly we don't always believe it because we still show our commitments to the wicked instead of the righteous to unbelieving friends or family or co-workers more than our commitment to those that we call our brothers in Christ, yet we do not treat them as such. For this, Lord, forgive us. 
But Lord, only forgive us as we are committed to repenting of that. Cleanse us only if we are ready to reprioritize our lives. They be around you, our master, and for the church, your body. Not to our glory, or even necessarily to our interests, but to your glory and to the, your interests. May we endeavor to do church. The balance of this day and throughout the week until your coming. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.